Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. My name is Victor Shi. I'm currently a sophomore at UCLA, was elected as the youngest delegate for Joe Biden, and also co-hosts his podcast. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks, the author of The Watergate Girl, based on my experience as an assistant Watergate special prosecutor. I'm also an MSNBC legal analyst and co-host of this podcast, as well as hashtag sistersinlaw. I also wear hashtag Jill's pins, and today's pin is once again in honor of Ukraine. Uh, it is yellow against a blue background, a yellow flower against a blue background. Over the past few weeks, Jill and I have struggled to make sense of the war against Ukraine. MSNBC's Eamon Moyhadeen joined us to talk about being a journalist in Ukraine during an earlier Russian invasion and how now as an anchor, he's trying to help us and our listeners to understand the current war. Then international law of armed conflict expert and Southwestern law professor and retired Lieutenant Colonel Rachel Van Landingham joined us to talk about international war crimes and holding the guilty accountable. Today, we continue our coverage of Ukraine because so long as Putin holds power, there seems to be no end in sight. And it's our responsibility to give you the information you need to make sense of what's going on and whether any of the international organizations or laws can end the carnage or only hold the guilty accountable after the devastation. Our guest, Emory University School of Law professor Lori Blank, is an expert on international armed conflict and international humanitarian law. Professor Blank is also the director of the International Humanitarian Law Clinic at Emory Law School, where she teaches the law of armed conflict and works directly with students to provide assistance to international tribunals, non-governmental organizations, and militaries around the world on cutting-edge issues in humanitarian law and human rights. Professor Blank is the co-author of International Law and Armed Conflict, Fundamental Principles and Contemporary Challenges in the Law of War, a casebook that is used in many law schools. She is also the co-director of a multi-year project on military training programs in the uh, law of war and the co-author of Law of War Training um, Resources for Military and Civilian Leaders. Today, we are going to focus on the news of Ukraine, the here and now, and Russia's unbelievable invasion of that country. Um, but I also want to delve into the background of the law of war. And I hope we never need Blank to uh, share her expertise in another area, which is in the, uh, she's written a manual on international law applicable to conflicts in outer space. She is also the author of numerous articles and opinion pieces on topics in the law of armed conflict, including targeted killing and drone strikes, the classifications of armed conflict, implementation of the law of armed conflict during military operations. She is the author of numerous articles and opinion pieces on topics in the classification of armed conflict, Implementation of the Law of Armed Conflict During Military Operations, Cyber War, and Law and Legitimacy in Armed Conflict. Before coming to Emory, Professor Blank was a program officer at the Rule of Law Program at the United States Institute of Peace, where she directed the Experts Working Group on International Humanitarian Law. 
We are very honored to have her with us today. Thank you so much for being with us. So let's start with the basics. Um, I understand the Hague and Geneva Conventions, which date back before World War I, contain the laws governing the conduct of armed conflict, including the law of aggression aimed at the leader of a country that invades, as well as laws defining um, war crimes for which combatants can be held accountable after the fact and to therefore hopefully deter um, atrocities. Um, in brief, I'm wondering, what are the most basic principles of those conventions? Sure. So the law of war has a very uh, long history dating back well beyond uh, the conventions that you've mentioned. But the core principles have developed over time um, and appear in both treaty and customary law, meaning law that's just developed over time. The basic, most important principles are don't attack civilians. Don't attack civilian objects like hospitals, residential buildings, churches, mosques, synagogues, museums. Uh, don't attack medical facilities beyond hospitals, ambulances, um, forward surgical uh, facilities. And don't attack the sort of essential needs of the civilian population. So don't attack food stores water treatment plants, um, things like that. And also relevant to the early days of the conflict in Ukraine, don't attack things like nuclear power plants that could cause severely hazardous consequences. That seems to be exactly what Vladimir Putin is doing right now. And so I'm wondering, are there any other relevant laws that govern in declaring war or in the rules of conduct during war, maybe civil liability in that sense? Well, we also want to distinguish here between two different things. One is the going to war, and one is how you fight in the war. Russia has managed to hit the, well, it's not the trifecta, <laughs> but the double, the double daily, whatever it would be, and violate both of those. Um, so the issue of aggression is starting an unlawful war, right? Is We all know what aggression is in basic English. It's basically the same thing in international law. It is an unjustified attack, an unjustified war. Russia has certainly launched that here. So that's one whole issue um, of criminality, of unlawful conduct, and of obviously severe tragedy that we're watching play out. But once the war starts, that's when we get into all these questions of how you actually fight, what people deserve protection, who is allowed to engage in the fighting, and what those consequences might be. So we want to keep those separate, and we want to make sure we don't forget either of those in talking about each one. Before we go on, let me just ask, you mentioned um, a justified war. Is there, what is the definition of when is a war justified? When is an act of aggression justified? Well, an act of aggression, by definition, is an illegal resort to force. So an act of aggression would never be justified. But the international system sets out basic framework for the use of force by one state against another state. And the starting presumption is you can't do it. So the UN Charter prohibits the use of force by one state 
in or against another state. However, there are a couple of exceptions. And because we want states to be able to uh, take action when there are severe threats um, to the international system, to their national security. So the three exceptions are if the state consents. So maybe another state has asked for your state's assistance in addressing attacks or um, crises in their territory. That's allowed. That's lawful. The second exception is if the United Nations Security Council authorizes the use of force as a collective, multilateral response to a situation in order to restore international peace and security. The third exception is self-defense. If a state is the victim of an attack under international law, we call it an armed attack. That's the threshold. A state that is the victim of an armed attack can use force in self-defense. None of those exceptions apply here in the situation of Russia and its invasion of Ukraine. So therefore, doesn't fit into those categories. It's unlawful. Thank very, you. Yeah, very interesting. Can we um, very quickly go back to the conventions? I'm just wondering what countries are signatories to the conventions um, and who do the laws cover within signatory countries? So the Geneva Conventions of 1949, which are the most recent, are contemporary uh, treaties setting out the law of war. They are the only treaties in the world that are signed by and ratified by every single country in the world. So they have universal application. And that demonstrates the importance that every country places on rules regulating warfare. So that's an important starting point. Now, in terms of who they apply to, the treaties, the law of war applies to a conflict. So every single person, every entity, everything that happens that is in any way related to the conflict is covered by the law. So it doesn't matter if you're the leader. It doesn't matter if you're a military officer. It doesn't matter if you're a civilian, a kid. You are both protected and governed by the law of war. And then how those protections and how those rules, duties, rights play out depend on who you are and what your role is. Very interesting. Um, just to maybe set some more groundwork for our audience, um, can you describe some historical examples of war crimes and some of the individuals who've been perpetrated under them and how they were held accountable? Well, unfortunately, it would take a long time to um, go through a historical accounting of war crimes. This is why this body of law and accountability is so important. But I think maybe the best example is to look at the Nuremberg tribunals after World War II, where um, the allies set up an international tribunal to prosecute German military and political leaders and industrial leaders for their participation in crimes committed during World War II and the Holocaust. There, interestingly, the leaders of Nazi Germany were prosecuted for the crime of aggressive war, right, which they called crimes against peace. But they were also prosecuted for a host of other war crimes, you know, forced deportation, mass extermination of civilians, all of the horrors that we are well familiar with. 
we fast forward about uh, 40 or 50 years, the next sort of big example would be the tribunals set up to prosecute perpetrators and atrocities in the former Yugoslavia and in Rwanda during those conflicts in the 1990s. And there, again, when we talk about what kinds of crimes were committed, we're again ultimately listing a catalog of horrors, rape, uh, torture, um, arbitrary detention, killing of civilians, forced deportation, um, a host of crimes in Rwanda, obviously genocide, at Srebrenica, genocide. So we see all of these, we've seen um, war crimes and other atrocities prosecuted in Sierra Leone, in Cambodia, and now the International Criminal Court has taken on cases from a number of different conflicts. But all of those are after the conflict has ended? The the use of an international tribunal tends to be after, but it is not necessarily after. So the tribunal for the former Yugoslavia was established in 1993 at the height of the conflict. It tried its first case in 1995. So really the conflict was ending, but it was close. What we haven't mentioned so far is prosecutions of law of war violations by individual countries, either committed by their own military personnel or by their adversaries who they have captured, detained, and identified as perpetrators. And that goes on in the midst of armed conflict. Um, It's often essentially a battlefield tribunal. And um, it's an obligation of all states to search for, investigate, and prosecute um, those who commit violations of the law of war. Oh, that is very interesting. And there have also been some prosecutions in absentia, haven't there been, where someone isn't actually captured, but is tried based on evidence that's been gathered? So in general, a trial in absentia is frowned upon in international law the same way it's frowned upon domestically. The only significant example is from the Special Tribunal for Lebanon, which was established to uh, investigate and prosecute those responsible for the assassination of the former prime minister back in 2005. That tribunal had a special provision allowing for trial in absentia, given the extraordinary difficulty of getting physical custody of the defendants who were sheltered by Hezbollah um, in that case. The the tribunal did have that capability. That decision to proceed in absentia then was challenged, was upheld, but as you can imagine, it has enormous consequences in terms of fair trial rights, um, human rights, and so on. So it's something to be extremely wary about. And related to that, I want to ask a question that I have some personal connection to. Um, I was a, uh, not a participant, but I was an official observer at the Klaus Barbie trial in Lyon, France. Uh, and I believe he was the last Nazi tried, um, and he was tried in France, not at Nuremberg. 
Uh, and this was in the 80s that he was finally captured and tried. And there was some, um, I, I had the privilege of meeting with Simone Weil, who was the first president of the European Parliament um, and had been prime, the uh, Minister of Health of France. But she was also a Holocaust survivor who opposed his prosecution on the grounds that he was being tried under an ex post facto law. Uh, can you address that? Do you have any knowledge of that? I, I mean, I'm surprising you. Well, with this there are question, always questions, and this came up at Nuremberg as well. Um, a, a fundamental principle of law in almost every legal system is the principle of legality, just the same thing as ex post facto, in the sense that you can't prosecute for someone someone for a crime that wasn't a crime at the time they committed mm -hmm. the act, right? And that's that's a concern in international accountability, the same way it's a concern in domestic accountability. And it's a good reminder that the fact that we see what is pretty clear evidence of war crimes and other violations occurring being committed in Ukraine doesn't mean that we don't need to have a trial with all Sorry. of the necessary protections. Nobody is suggesting this, but it's always just a good reminder. For example, the fact that we see endless video and photographic footage and social media doesn't mean that anybody indicted and brought before a court doesn't still have the same presumption of innocence, right? And so the same thing holds true with ex post facto, which is the question of at the time the acts were committed, were they a crime under the law being applied at that tribunal? And so the Nuremberg Tribunal had to address that, which is were the atrocities committed um, during World War II in the Holocaust, were they understood to be crimes at the time, not just under the charter of the tribunal, but at the time. And what the tribunal did was look and say, well, what was understood as the law at the time? And they looked and they said, yes, this was very clearly understood as a violation of international law through looking at what had developed as customary law over time, looking at how states had criminalized different acts. And so that would apply as well to the Klaus Barbie case. I think the Nuremberg Tribunal's analysis would have been extraordinarily um, consequential and convincing for the court in that case as well. But it is an important concern, right? It shouldn't be dismissed when somebody raises it because if you are trying to hold someone accountable for their flagrant violation of the law, mm -hmm. the best way to do that is to make sure that you stick to the letter of the law throughout the whole process and not skip right. things that are inconvenient and so on. Well, it seems whatever the law then was, it's certainly apparent under the current rules that uh, Putin has violated the, the law of aggression and that he is conducting a war that includes what you've defined in the very beginning as war crimes, attacking hospitals and children, et cetera. Um, and 
am, am I right in concluding that the evidence that's now being gathered by the International Criminal Court will show both, as you've distinguished it, violations of the rules of aggression, that is starting the war, which would be Putin's responsibility and maybe his top aides and top generals, um, but that in the conduct, the people on the ground, his, his soldiers, are responsible for targeting civilians. Is that correct? And is that what the laws require? Yes, I think that's absolutely correct. If um, we sit as sort of armchair armchair courts, right, without the, obviously, all the process that will be gone through, it appears to be fairly overwhelmingly convincing that all of those violations are occurring. One of the other things to add, though, to what you've said is that under the law of war, leaders and commanders can be held accountable for the violations committed by their subordinates, right. which is critically important, uh, particularly when we see what appears to be either a policy of engaging in these types of acts or an utter disregard for the rules that would prohibit it. And that's kind of the only way that, in my mind that I can characterize the mental state, the intention of the leaders from whatever, you know, senior military leadership all the way up to Putin is either they've ordered this kind of conduct or they have yeah. um, been welcoming to it or they certainly haven't tried to stop it. And all of those things will um, end up making them responsible under what's called command responsibility, which basically says that a military or civilian superior is accountable for violations committed by his or her subordinates wow. when the leader knew or should have known that those acts were going on and failed to take steps to prevent or punish. And we seem to have a textbook example of that going on here. Again, based on yeah. sitting in my comfortable seat and looking at what the news is covering. It is quite amazing to be witnessing this from our homes. And, and I think everyone in America is moved by the uh, atrocities that are going on by everything you defined as the things that the law of war says you cannot do, cutting off water, cutting off heat, cutting off food. It's it, uh, targeting nuclear sites, hospitals, children's places, ambulances, medical. Uh, it's just, it is devastating. And of course, it makes you wonder what tools exist to prevent this from happening rather than holding people accountable after they have destroyed a country and murdered people and dislocated. I mean, there are apparently 10 million dislocated Ukrainians right now. That's a quarter of the country. And obviously that's a humanitarian crisis in and of itself. But is there any way to have stopped this other than military uh, response? 
that's obviously sort of the one of the thorniest questions. Mm. And there are a number of tools um, at the disposal of both states and the international community. And just as in domestic law and questions about rising crime rates in given cities or elsewhere, tools can only take us so far. And an individual who is just dead set on committing uh, crimes, violence, atrocities is generally going to find a way to do that no matter what um, steps are taken. But with that depressing note, um, let's think about sort of what what is out there. One of the reasons we have accountability is to try to deter people from mm-hmm. engaging in this type of conduct. There's a whole world of um, study and analysis about whether deterrence is effective, in what way, and that applies across whether it's domestic or international. So that's a very complicated topic, but it is certainly one aspect of accountability. Accountability also, when somebody is convicted, prevents that individual and and those under his or her command from engaging in those acts again. So one piece there is accountability. But more broadly, the law of war requires that all countries and all armed forces disseminate the law, what are the rules for Mm -hmm. how you fight, and train their forces in them, and ensure discipline and responsible command. So the whole structure of the law is set up not based on hope, like, oh, these are great rules. Let's hope everybody's a good person and follows them. But in in requires that um, military structures, that leaders take steps to make sure that they are communicating this. So that's one piece. Um, another piece is to look at the avenues available in the international system at the United Nations to try to prevent disputes from escalating into this type of tragedy. One can certainly look at the world and say, well, that doesn't seem terribly effective. I prefer to take a more optimistic view and say that any time we can have talking instead of fighting, then we're doing something good and we're doing something right. And it's a little bit hard to set up a controlled experiment and figure out what crises didn't escalate into full-on shooting, but might have without some of these avenues for dispute resolution. So, you know, at a minimum, the fact that we have an institution in the form of the United Nations and the countless other regional and international organizations where states who really don't like each other can come together and talk about their differences and try to reach maybe accommodation, if not resolution, is pretty remarkable. And for me, I think it's worth upholding and recognizing the weaknesses, but not discarding in any way. I, I couldn't agree more, but let me just take it to today, which was we saw hundreds of thousands of troops massed at the border. 
which seemed an obvious invasion prelude. And, of course, Putin denied that he was going to invade, and the international community did nothing. And then he invaded. Is there something that could have been done as those tanks and medical facilities uh, were set up on the border with Ukraine? Is there something that could have been done then under international law? Well, I'm not sure I would say that nothing was done. I think there were extensive, extensive diplomatic efforts to Mm -hmm. forestall any such invasion, which obviously, unfortunately, did not work. But we saw, I think, what was considered and will continue to be considered a truly extraordinary effort by the U.S. and NATO allies, uh, by their leaders, to engage in diplomacy, shuttling across to all different European capitals, into Ukraine, elsewhere, back and forth, trying to engage with uh, Russian diplomats and Russian leaders, trying to figure out some way to maintain the talking longer and not the fighting. It didn't work. Um, And that may be solely due to the fact that Vladimir Putin had his mindset on what he wanted to do. And at some point, there's only so much one can do about that one of the challenges in this situation is that in many ways it was a perfect storm of finding all the vulnerabilities in the international system. Mm-hmm. So the United Nations is set up to uh, prevent another, you know, massive conflagration, to prevent disputes from escalating into war. One of the challenge, and it has the authority in the Security Council to take steps to respond to threats to the peace, breaches of the peace, even to order military force to do that. One of the challenges is that Russia is on the Security Council and has a veto as one of the permanent five permanent members. So, any other country, we would have seen the Security Council taking increasingly aggressive steps to try to contain the situation. We would have seen UN Security Council man resolutions condemning. We would have seen perhaps steps taken to uh, curtail the supply or movement of weapons or potentially even set out an ultimatum. If this, then watch out. However, with Russia having a veto, None of those things could get passed in the Security Council. And that's, is that a a vulnerability? Absolutely. But it's the system we have right now. Right. But it seems both unfair and ineffective. Um, Is there any thought or action being taken to amend that in some way? That if one of the members of the Security Council is the aggressor, that action can be taken by the rest of the world? I think there are a lot of discussions going on about a variety of ways to address Security Council reform, not only for this reason, for many other reasons. We have to 
think back to 1945 and the reason that the major power, one of the reasons the major powers joined in to the United Nations and therefore agreed to participate in a collective security apparatus rather than looking out for themselves as a one of the strongest you know military powers at the time was that they uh, had this structure at the security council where they would be permanent members and have a veto and that was essential to getting buy-in from the united states from the soviet union at the time and that's the nature of multilateral negotiations right you, you give a little you get something you don't get everything you want so it is certainly a challenge, right? It definitely makes it difficult. It's a reason why the Security Council has essentially not been able to do anything with respect to Syria, because Russia has blocked those as well. One thing that did occur in this circumstance was that when the Security Council was blocked from acting to condemn Russia's invasion, the General Assembly took up the uh, baton, basically. Now, the General Assembly does not have any coercive or mandatory authority, but um, it can step in in questions of international peace and security when the Security Council is paralyzed, in essence. And so it issued a strong condemnation. What is it worth? It's a strong condemnation. <laughs> sort of exactly. all we can take out of it. And you know, again, would things be better if some of these obstacles weren't in the path? Absolutely. But that's sort of a longer term question. And you end up in the short term trying to figure out how do you navigate around these different obstacles. And what we've seen the U.S. and NATO partners do is figure out how to essentially impose massive multilateral sanctions right. without the UN authorizing it, right? Without the imprimatur of the UN Security Council. Well, we're going to make it happen anyway. And they do that through dogged diplomacy and solidarity and all of that. It's harder, but that's what we've seen. Right. And so right now, NATO and other countries um, and organizations are using sanctions and, as you said, condemnations in the hope that it will stop Putin. But neither of them are working. So I'm wondering, is there anything else that could stop him without military intervention? I don't know that I would say it's not working. Um, we are seeing that the Russia is severely constrained by um, its lack of access to resources. We're seeing them change their strategy today. Not sure why, right? Again, we don't know why, but they haven't um, succeeded in terms strategically in the way they seem to have. They have unfortunately succeeded in causing massive destruction, right? So in no way should we suggest that this is not um, a major crisis, but Russia does not seem to be uh, having a, uh, a cakewalk that maybe it thought it was going to have. One of the challenges with sanctions is that they are not quick. They are not an acute tool in any way, unless they, and I mean, in some very unique circumstance, they're imposed on a very small 
country with a unidimensional economy that essentially is going to cry uncle the minute the you know every, all the taps are shut off. Russia obviously is not that country. Um, twisting the screws, in essence, which is what sanctions is, is a long-term, slow-moving process. So we actually have no way to know um, this sort of, are they working? Um, the measure that we can look at now would be, are they succeeding in cutting off all the things that are the, you know, that are the intended target of the sanctions. And just from the coverage, it appears that they have been fairly effective in that manner. The challenge is, does that sort of tightening of the screws and shutting off of all trade and travel and blocking assets is that going to change the mind of the one person who's in control of what Russia does? And that's a question that I guess only a behavioral psychologist sort of FBI profiler type could begin to guess at, right? I mean, that's essentially the challenge. Um, so I think the, you know, provision of as much support as possible to Ukraine, bolstering their abilities as much as possible is essential. And recognizing that there is a very delicate dance to be done to try not to escalate this further and still help as much as possible. I think I just have one more on that. I mean, I, I think it's just such an important point to keep in mind that sanctions are long-term. And so are there any other sanctions that you think could be imposed beyond those being used right now? We mentioned the seizing and freezing of assets, um, no Russian oil, SWIFT. Are there any that you think could be used right now that haven't been imposed already? That's a good question. I think um, without having checked the the latest status, um, I think that there still are some taps of oil and natural gas open to some countries that perhaps the U.S. is still working to uh, shut off, so to speak. Um, obviously, the biggest loophole is China. And to the extent that China continues to um, trade with Russia, to buy their wheat, to um, you know, and, and allow them access to markets and so on. That is a, that is a hole in the sanctions. And we saw a week or two ago that Russia asked China for military equipment. We haven't seen much more about that. We know that the U S engaged in a very fast and serious effort to say, Oh no, no, do not do that. <laughs> do not do that. Um, we haven't seen any more about that. So either it's not happening or those talks are still going on or it's happening under cover of night. But that's obviously um, a rather significant aspect here. That's, I think, where we can see on sanctions. Let's go back to some of the other subjects we've been talking about. 
if Putin is victorious militarily, can he ever be held accountable? Other than through these sanctions. I mean, it's related to sanctions, but is there any other way? I mean, could he be tried for the war crimes even if he wins? Well, or let's let's say if there is a as it, there seems to be some bilateral talks and that Ukraine may be willing to give up certain things and he, he might say, OK, that's enough. I, I have what I wanted. Um, right. Is there any consequences? Would he have to at least pay for the damage he's done in some way? So there's a variety of possible options or considerations in order to hold him criminally accountable the biggest challenge is how do you get him before a court if he chooses not to leave russia and he either remains in power or still controls the levers of power then it's unlikely he's going to get turned over to a court and it's inconceivable that a russian court would try him so that's one of the biggest challenges there are avenues for prosecution but they all ultimately depend on physically having him in the court, which means getting custody of him. So that's obviously a, a big challenge. And if he, if he remains in power, regardless of how one describes a conclusion, let's hope there is one very soon. Um, if he remains in power, then that's a, we're, we're not that likely to see him personally stand in a court. That's separate from a question of reparations, which, for example, um, could be part of a settlement of some kind. Um, and reparations have been uh, a part of past um, end of conflict scenarios, whether World War I, World War II, um, we saw claims commission in the aftermath of Iraq's invasion of Kuwait. Uh, we've seen a, a host of situations where reparations either are used or certainly would be relevant. So I think we're going to see discussion um, in that respect. But again, that will depend on whether or not that is raised and effectively deployed in any kind of settlement. Another way we might see reparations ordered is at the International Court of Justice, um, which we haven't discussed yet, but which is another legal avenue that is going on right now. And the International Court of Justice is the court where states bring a lawsuit, basically, against another state. It's not a criminal proceeding. It's where one state says, this other state has violated its obligations to us or has breached international law in some way and brings them to court. Ukraine has done that. That case is ongoing against Russia right now. And it's certainly possible that the International Court of Justice, if it rules uh, in Ukraine's favor, could order reparations as the necessary consequence um, of that. We then come to the challenge of how do you get those reparations paid? Um, and we kind of circle back to the same challenge, which is that 
the UN Security Council can order enforcement of a judgment of the International Court of Justice. But once again, Russia has a veto on the Security Council. So we we have some repeated obstacles that we hit. But just as a last point on that, that's not a reason to skip over these processes because a ruling of illegality, a a judgment by a court, an ordering of reparations, that matters. It runs the risk of, oh, well, you know, it's being ignored. So are we, are we damaging the reputation of these institutions? But by the same token, I think there's a much greater reputational risk for international law if the collective we just sort of says, oh, this is too hard. Nobody's going to follow it anyway. I, I agree with you that doing something is better than doing nothing. And there could be consequences in the future when uh, either assets are mm-hmm. able to be seized and, um, you know, permanently removed from the prior holder, or in some other way, if if any of the participants ends up in a neutral country or a country that's willing to arrest them, they could be charged. Mm-hmm. Um, one follow-up on the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, is Russia, has, has Russia submitted to the jurisdiction of that court? So it's not automatic, and Ukraine actually... Uh, engaged in some very excellent international lawyering in this case. So like everything else in international law, the jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice is ultimately based on consent because states are sovereign entities. And so consent underpins everything somewhere in international law. The court has jurisdiction in a couple of different ways. And it was very difficult to find the entry point to get jurisdiction over Russia because they have not generally accepted the jurisdiction of the court. However, they are a party to the Genocide Convention, as is Ukraine. And the Genocide Convention includes a provision that says that disputes arising as to the application or interpretation of this convention shall be settled at the International Court of Justice. So what Ukraine did was they said, well, Russia has argued that, fantastically in essence, that Ukraine is committing genocide inside Ukraine against Russian speakers, ethnic Russians, and so on. And that was one of the reasons Putin laid out in his speech the days before the invasion as, well, we've got to go in and save these people from these atrocities. Of course, these atrocities are not happening at all. There's zero evidence of it. But that was one of Putin's arguments. So what Ukraine said was, well, you're saying that we're doing this and we're pretty sure we're not doing this. So that's a dispute as to the application and interpretation of the Genocide Convention. Guess what? We think the court has jurisdiction. And they brought the case to the court and they made a couple of arguments, right? Beyond saying, guess what? We found a jurisdictional hook. Again, excellent lawyering there. But they said, 
look, Ukraine, I mean, sorry, Russia has made this false claim and they've used this false claim to justify attacking us. And so Ukraine said, we would like, you know, the court to rule that, in fact, no, there is no genocide going on. And more importantly, in the immediate situation, is that that is not a basis to use force in any, like, at all, right? If we think back to the beginning of our conversation, what were the exceptions? One of them is not stopping atrocities in another state. Separate question as to whether it should be, right? Separate question. There's a moral underpinning for that. It's not the current law. So Ukraine said, we would, you know, let's let's sort this out, right? They're making a false claim based on misinformation, disinformation, and they're using that to essentially justify, legitimize their attack on us. So the court had its initial hearing uh, about two weeks ago, no, about three weeks ago, and actually issued a provisional ruling. Um, So it's a a little bit akin to an injunction in domestic courts. It's called provisional measures. And the court said, we have a prima facie case of jurisdiction. That's all we need to issue a ruling on provisional measures. We'll, We'll hear more about jurisdiction down the road. And Ukraine at least is making a good case that their rights are being threatened, um, that the claim it's making are linked, right? All these things are appropriately linked. The harm would be irreparable. And so they issued an order saying Russia has to stop this uh, military operations. They have to stop supporting armed groups in the Donbass and other regions that are also participating and, um, you know, the sides need to try to find a way to resolve this dispute. Um, we get to the same problem of Russia is thumbing its nose at that. But um, again, I think a really interesting example of how to use the law, um, every tool you have at your disposal and the court did make the important statement that they 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 said something like it's doubtful that you know the existence of such alleged genocide could possibly justify the use of force so they 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 gave us a a bit of a spoiler you know a trailer for what's to come in that respect so that's a very interesting case to watch as well totally fascinating and not getting the attention that it deserves in the media. Um, I, I, I really am fascinated by that. Although I'm equally astounded that genocide in another country isn't grounds for action because I, I basically, that would have meant that a stopping the Holocaust was not permitted under international laws. Am I understanding you correctly? Well, so that was actually before the UN Charter um, was established and the firm prohibition on the use of force was set out in international law. But let's fast forward and say that military force to stop the genocide in Rwanda 
and you know would not have been lawful. Um, the U.S. and NATO operation in 1999 to get Milosevic to stop atrocities in Kosovo um, did not have a lawful basis. And in fact, interestingly, uh, the U.S. and others have essentially described it as unlawful but legitimate, which is a only a phrase a lawyer could come up with. Um, but a really good description of where the law in the international community stand right now, which is there is a powerful moral imperative to do everything possible to stop atrocities, including, hey, I can bring my army in here that's a whole lot bigger than yours and I can make you stop. Very powerful moral imperative. What we're seeing happen in real time here, though, is a perfect example of why the law has not gone there. Because what we're seeing is Putin using it as a pretext. And that's one of the biggest concerns is, sure, there's no doubt that in a situation of actual atrocities, we want to have every tool available to stop them. But there's a real concern about a country fabricating or, um, uh, you know, fabricating atrocities or making them seem much more making small amounts of violence appear to be significant atrocities in order to use it as a pretext for conquest or, or territorial grab or anything else. And one of the challenges is how do you determine when a situation is grave enough to justify the use of force to stop it. And I guess it would be when you can convince the UN to make a joint declaration that it is and to allow the use of force. Um, so right now that can happen. The UN Security Council can authorize the use of force. It did that in Libya to stop Gaddafi from slaughtering civilians in the spring of 2011. So the UN can do that. Right, the UN Security Council could authorize force to stop atrocities. Absolutely. The question is can a state on its own say, you know what? I'm gonna do this. And we have a we 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 we're seeing the law develop right now because the United Kingdom, Belgium, Denmark have all come out saying we think this humanitarian intervention is a valid reason, lawful reason to use force. Very interesting. The rest of the world isn't there yet. Yeah, I think we're going to have to follow up on that. It's a fascinating subject, and Mm -hmm. I I think it may be subject for a future conversation with you. So let's go back. We've been talking about the International Court of Justice. Let's go back to talking about the International Criminal Court, which, as I understand it, is currently gathering evidence uh, for subsequent accountability of Putin and Russia for their conduct in starting the war and in how they are conducting the war. And so why are they gathering the information now and what are the limits of what the ICC can do and what are the consequences depending on what they find? So the ICC is currently investigating. Um, It 
moved extremely quickly in this circumstance, which is terrific. Being able to gather evidence in real time is extremely, well, it's extremely dangerous. It's extremely challenging, but it's also extremely useful because if you think of sort of a far end of the spectrum trying to uh, bring a case and marshal the evidence for crimes or atrocities that were committed 10, 15, 20, 30 years before, imagine the challenge, right, of how do you find your your uh, documentary evidence? How do you find your satellite reconnaissance photos? How do you get witnesses? Um, this is obviously a huge challenge in a place like Cambodia, where they've been trying to prosecute, but only maybe 40 years after the the uh, crimes that were committed there. So in that sense, extremely useful to do it in real time, extremely challenging as well, because um, it's dangerous for whoever's gathering the information. Um, the, the officials um, and other entities in Ukraine that they might want to be getting information from and talking to are, let's just say, a little busy conducting a war and protecting people. Um, another challenge is, um, both a good and a, both a good and a challenge of what's going on is the absolute tsunami of information that is coming out, that is being shared both with the ICC and all, and other repositories that are gathering information. We all have cell phones, um, social media, all of these tools enable everybody to share information. So a huge amount of information is coming out. The question is, how do you authenticate that information in court? Not just just the actually, is it is it real enough that we should use it in the process of our investigation? But if you want to bring it into court as evidence, how do you authenticate that a video was taken at the location by the person of the situation at the time that it purports to be? We all know that fakes can be created and so on. So just the process, how do you store all of this? How do you process it? How do you uh, categorize? So that's, uh, those are issues that are just being dealt with right now. Just literally, how do you manage the flow of information? Um, but the court, um, the ICC can prosecute war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide occurring um, in or alleged to be occurring in Ukraine. The ICC does not have the ability to prosecute aggression in this case. It does generally have jurisdiction over the crime of aggression, but there's a jurisdictional uh, hurdle here, which is that the ICC can only prosecute aggression when both states the the aggressor and the victim are members of the International Criminal Court, are parties to it. In this case, neither Ukraine nor Russia are members of the court. So that rules out aggression. Normally, it might, well, it would make it exceedingly difficult for the court to have jurisdiction over any crimes. But what's happened here is that in 2015, Ukraine took advantage of a provision in the Rome Statute of the ICC that said that a non 
party, a state that's not a party, can still refer a situation to the court, can say, look, this is a terrible situation. We're willing to give the court jurisdiction, even though we haven't joined the whole treaty. They did that in 2015. The prosecutor began a preliminary examination after Crimea, right, and the the conflict in the in eastern Ukraine that's been going on and simmering since then. So an investigation had already begun, sort of at the preliminary stages. In order for that to progress from the first stage called preliminary examination, which is very much an open source, let's look and see if this situation merits an in-depth investigation. In order to progress from there, because Ukraine is not a member of the court, the prosecutor needed other member states to basically raise their hands and say, please open an investigation in Ukraine, right? So the jurisdictional door was opened when Ukraine referred it, but in order to then launch an investigation, they needed one more push. Well, in the space of a few hours, literally about 40 states that are members of the ICC picked up the baton and said, we refer this for you to open an investigation. So that's how that all happened so quickly. And now the court is gathering information, receiving communications, uh, doing all the things that a court does to gather evidence, assess who who is engaging in acts, you know, who is responsible, what kinds of evidence can be marshaled, and so on. So I want At to some point out point, for our listeners that yeah, another non-member is the United States. That's we correct. have not agreed to uh, ever submit war crimes. Uh, apparently, America believes that it can punish its own wrongdoers and not allow an international court to do it while obviously wanting the international court to take action in a situation like this. So um, any comments on that? Yeah, so the U.S. originally signed the Rome Statute on the last day possible at the very end of the Clinton administration. Um, President Clinton at the time, this was December 31st of 2000, very last minute that it was open, um, and but the president, President Clinton at the time, did not send it to the Senate for ratification, knowing that it would not succeed there for a variety of reasons. And soon thereafter, the Bush administration unsigned, which is which is not really something that we find, you know, like if you're looking in an international law textbook for unsigning, you're not going to find it anywhere, but basically said, we have no intention of actually proceeding along the path of becoming a party. And the Bush administration was very standoffish with respect to the court, um, took measures to try to get other countries to promise they would not cooperate on certain matters. The Obama administration was much more supportive, did not actually sign or try to ratify the treaty, but worked very closely with the court, provided a lot of support, engaged extensively. The Trump administration 
went much further back in the opposite direction, uh, put sanctions on the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, wouldn't allow her to travel to the U.S. um, in response to the court's investigation in Afghanistan that was likely to um, encompass conduct by U.S. forces. And now we have a lot of boomeranging. Um, The Biden administration is, I would say, has generally a much more supportive posture, has removed those impediments to engaging with the court, and right now sees a lot of reason to provide a lot of support, but ends up basically where you started, which is not looking to join, um, not willing to accept the court's jurisdiction over U.S. actions and U.S. personnel, but certainly supportive of it in other situations. This is not the first time the U.S. has sat in that kind of chair in the space of international law. Um, That's also a much longer conversation and advocacy and things like that. But um, if we, if we keep our mind focused on the immediate scenario, then whatever support states can provide to the International Criminal Court will be um, extremely useful. So, Lori, if we could, I'd like to go back to a question I have about sanctions. One of the sanctions has been seizing assets and freezing assets Uh, That includes yachts. Maybe it'll include some uh, bank accounts and some condominiums. What are the complications that are preventing seizing these assets? Um, I know that I've read about the problem is, first of all, proving who owns them, because Mm -hmm. oftentimes the oligarchs have used shell companies. And so you can't really directly trace ownership to the people that are sanctioned. Um, And... So I just would like to know a little bit more about what can be done to complete the seizures and how long can they stay seized? I mean, depending on how long the war goes or if it ends without reparations, could these be used to uh, give finances to rebuild Ukraine, which is obviously its infrastructure is destroyed. Um, So, you know, we have a new DOJ, Department of Justice, uh, klepto capture team working on this, but I'm trying to figure out what their limitations are. Ultimately, these are going to be questions of domestic law because these sanctions are put in place by individual countries. If this were part of a package of UN Security Council authorized sanctions, then that the all those terms would be set by the resolution that the Security Council passed, which would um, generally set out at the beginning, you know, calling upon Russia to end its military operations, to do this, to do that. And, you know, in order to encourage that, imposing the following sanctions. And then you see the linkage there. Um, when it comes to domestic law, that's going to depend on each country's, uh, 
legal infrastructure for imposing those sanctions and for the um, statutory authority that they have to impose the given sanctions. So we have the the challenge of two things. Um, who should be sanctioned? And that is essentially a, a strategic question of how do you put the most pressure on? So, right, the oligarchs and the industrialists and so on, the idea is to, um, on a couple of levels, prevent their assets from assisting in the unlawful acts because it's likely that Putin probably can access those things if he wants them, right? If he says to those who are supporting him, uh, we need a little more in the coffers, I'm I'm assuming there is some relationship where that takes place. Um, but also to get those individuals to be pressured, to be uncomfortable, to put pressure on the leadership in Russia, because um, we know this is not, you know, it's not like the the Duma, the Russian parliament is going to, you know, pass some law that constrains Putin in the way that we might see in a democratic, whether the U.S. or a parliamentary democracy, et cetera. So we're not going to see that. So the question is, who do you put pressure on? Well, you put pressure on the people who have the access and the money. How do you figure out whose yacht is whose, whose condominium is whose? That's where we really have the forensic accountants, right? All the all the tools that we have for doing that kind of investigation and figuring that out. And then how do you use the levers to get at those? Um, how do you convince the country where the yacht is located to impound it, to take all the necessary steps? So there's, there's multiple pieces of both lawmaking and investigating and diplomacy and uh, arm twisting going on there. As far as how long, that's also going to depend on the um, the authority that's set out and the structure. But certainly, I would expect that these sanctions are at a minimum tied to pulling out of Ukraine in some way, right? I haven't. I don't know that we've seen the particular wording. Is it? And I'm sure it's open ended, so that it's it's easy for the sanctions to be maintained for as long as the U S government and other governments believe that it's useful. As far as, um, using the assets, I think for things like rebuilding and so on, I don't think we should assume that's out of the picture. Again, I think it's going to depend on the authorities. Um, Assets that have been frozen have certainly been used in the past to um, make reparation. For example, the claims commission from Iraq's invasion of Kuwait, um, that money didn't just come out of the blue. Um, Iranian assets that were frozen after the hostage crisis, they, you know, when the US Iran claims commission was set up to adjudicate claims coming out of that. Obviously all those assets weren't used. Um, some have been returned. 
So I think it ultimately depends on each individual structuring of a given situation. But I would say right now, all options are on the table. I would be surprised if any of those sanctions were set up in a way that limited the ability to do any of that. And and from what I've read, we are still holding Iranian assets since the 70s. So obviously, Mm -hmm. it can be held for a long time. Um, So let me just ask one final question, which has to do with um, humanitarian organizations and that are helping now in Ukraine. And I know so many of our listeners feel helpless. They want to do something. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can give any advice on what our listeners can do to help. And um, I mean, the government has, of course, uh, under President Biden, uh, offered over a billion in humanitarian aid to Ukraine. And... Um, has also said that America will welcome, um, I think, 100,000 mm-hmm. refugees from Ukraine. Um, so I want to ask what we, the listeners, can do, and also whether you think that America could do more. Ha- has it done enough, or is there more they can do, and what would be the most effective thing to do? So the work of the humanitarian organizations on the ground is absolutely essential, right, in providing food, shelter, uh, access to evacuate, uh, assistance to refugees, and so on. And in terms of what we can do, uh, a couple of things I would suggest. One is be educated on what's going on. Um, Be aware of what's happening, who's committing violations, who's defending themselves, so that misinformation is less effective, right? We know that the Russians traffic in misinformation, disinformation, propaganda, and all those uh, related things, and they benefit when there's confusion, when things are obscured, when there's debates about what was right, what was wrong, It's pretty clear here. It's about as clear cut as one can imagine. And so one thing is to make sure that we're all educated about the very basics here. You can't invade another country just because you're angry at them, just because you want their territory. Um, You want to punish them, whatever it is, you can't do it. Um, So let's make sure that we are um, properly as sort of global citizens of the world, educated about these basic rules, basic protections for people in wartime. In terms of um, support, I think that certainly those who are interested in providing financial support, there's lots of organizations out there. um, And generally in this kind of scenario, providing it to organizations with significant infrastructure who are already working in the area is always going to be the most effective rather than trying to come up with, you know, uh, elaborate systems or trying to help people one-to-one because it's better to not kind of get in the way in essence. So I think there's lots of ways out there. There's lots of ways 
once Ukrainian refugees are actually able to get onto U.S. shores, there's lots of ways to help there as well. And we have, through NGOs, through um, local communities, already a a pretty well-established system from helping Syrian refugees who've come here and Afghan refugees who have come in on our way here. So look for, if that's something that interests you, look for what's going on in your community um, to help, whether it's providing furniture for folks who are being, you know, provided a new home, bringing them meals, whatever. There's lots, lots of ways in that sense. And um, can the U.S. do more? I'm sure there's always more right? There's always more that can be done. I think that the the U.S. and the administration has done up till now a really excellent job of marshalling international support and most importantly, solidarity that the U.S. and its allies in NATO and other allies have been in lockstep. And that's not easy when you have 30 plus nations who may agree on the big stuff, but don't necessarily agree on all the little stuff. And we have just seen absolute solidarity. And I think that's been critically important here. I hope the U.S. can find a way to help whoever needs help. And I would expect that the U.S. and other allies will be playing a major role in assisting with rebuilding both financially and logistically. Um, And let's help we can get to that stage as soon as possible. So Professor Lori Blank, thank you so much for what I found to be fascinating and insightful, elucidating, wonderful uh, conversation about this war in Ukraine and from a different perspective. And on behalf of Victor, who had to leave to go to class, I thank you from both of us and uh, appreciate your time. Well, thank you very much for having me. Thank you all for joining us, whether on podcast or on YouTube. We hope you enjoyed the episode as much as we did and that you will give us a five-star rating and that you will subscribe so that you won't miss any future episodes. Listen wherever you can. Apple Podcast or anywhere else for podcasts and on YouTube if you want to see us talking to Professor Lori Blank. Thank you. See you next week for another episode of iGen Politics. <laughs>